please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Darren L. Slider www.logoslibrary.org The Enchiridion by St. Augustine Chapter 54 But what we believe as to Christ's action in the future, when he shall come from heaven to judge the quick and the dead, has no bearing upon the life which we now lead here. For it forms no part of what he did upon earth, but is part of what he shall do at the end of the world. And it is to this that the Apostle refers in what immediately follows the passage quoted above. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. Chapter 55 Now the expression, to judge the quick and the dead, may be interpreted in two ways. Either we may understand by the quick those who at his advent shall not yet have died, but whom he shall find alive in the flesh, and by the dead those who have departed from the body, or who shall have departed before his coming, or we may understand the quick to mean the righteous, and the dead the unrighteous, for the righteous shall be judged as well as others. Now the judgment of God is sometimes taken in a bad sense, as, for example, they that have done evil unto the resurrection of judgment, sometimes in a good sense, as, Save me, O God, by thy name, and judge me by thy strength. This is easily understood when we consider that it is the judgment of God which separates the good from the evil, and sets the good at his right hand, that they may be delivered from evil, and not destroyed with the wicked, and it is for this reason that the psalmist cried, Judge me, O God, and then added, as if in explanation, and distinguish my cause from that of an ungodly nation. Chapter 56 and now, having spoken of Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, our Lord, with the brevity suitable to a confession of our faith, we go on to say that we believe also in the Holy Ghost, thus completing the Trinity which constitutes the Godhead. Then we mention the Holy Church, and thus we are made to understand that the intelligent creation, which constitutes the free Jerusalem, ought to be subordinate in the order of speech to the Creator, the Supreme Trinity. For all that is said of the man Christ Jesus has reference, of course, to the unity of the person of the only begotten. Therefore the true order of the creed demanded that the church should be made subordinate to the Trinity, as the house to him who dwells in it, the temple to God who occupies it, and the city to its builder. And we are here to understand the whole church, not that part of it only which wanders as a stranger on the earth, praising the name of God from the rising of the sun to the going down of the same, and singing a new song of deliverance from its old captivity, but that part also which has always from its creation remained steadfast to God in heaven, and has never experienced the misery consequent upon a fall. This part is made up of the holy angels who enjoy uninterrupted happiness, and, as it is bound to do, it renders assistance to the part which is still wandering among strangers. For these two parts shall be one in the fellowship of eternity, and now they are one in the bonds of love, the whole having been ordained for the worship of the one God. Wherefore, neither the whole church, nor any part of it, has any desire to be worshipped instead of God, nor to be God to any one who belongs to the temple of God, that temple which is built up of the saints who were created by the uncreated God. And therefore the Holy Spirit, if a creature, could not be the creator, but would be a part of the intelligent creation. He would simply be the highest creature, and therefore would not be mentioned in the creed before the church, for he himself would belong to the church, to the, that part of it which is in the heavens. And he would not have a temple, for he himself would be part of a temple. Now he has a temple, of which the apostle says, Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God? 
of which body he says in another place, Know ye not that your bodies are the members of Christ? How then is he not God, seeing that he has a temple? And how can he be less than Christ, whose members are his temple? Nor has he one temple, and God another, seeing that the same apostle says, Know ye not that ye are the temple of God? And adds as proof of this, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you. God, then, dwells in his temple, not the Holy Spirit only. But of that part of the church which is in heaven, what can we say? Not the angels that sinned, as the Apostle Peter writes, but cast them plain the fact that while all are called by the general name angels, as we read in the epistle to the Hebrews, but to which of the angels said God at any time, sit on my right hand, this form of expression being evidently designed to embrace all the angels without exception, we yet find that there are some called archangels, and what of the archangels are the same as those called hosts, so that the expression, Praise ye him, all his angels, praise ye him, all his hosts, is the same as if it had been said, Praise ye him, all his angels, praise ye him, all his archangels. And what are the various significations of those four names under which the apostle seems to embrace the whole heavenly company without exception, whether they be thrones, or dominions, or principalities, or powers? Let those who are able answer these questions, if they can also prove their answers to be true. But as for me, I confess my ignorance. I am not even certain upon this point, whether the sun and the moon and all the stars do not form part of this same society, though many consider them merely luminous bodies, without either sensation or intelligence. CHAPTER 59 Further, who will tell with what sort of bodies it was that the angels appeared to men, making themselves not only visible, but tangible? And again, how it is that not through material bodies, but by spiritual power, they present visions not to the bodily eyes, but to the spiritual eyes of the mind, or speak something not into the ear from without, but from within the soul of the man, they themselves being stationed there too, as it is written in the prophet, and the angel that spake in me said unto me. He does not say, that spake to me, but that spake in me. Or appear to men in sleep, and make communications through dreams, as we read in the gospel. Behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, for these methods of communication seem to imply that the angels have not tangible bodies, and make it a very difficult question to solve how the patriarchs washed their feet, and how it was that Jacob wrestled with the angel in a way so unmistakably material. To ask questions like these, and to make such guesses as we can at the answers, is a useful exercise for the intellect, if the discussion be kept within proper bounds, and if we avoid the error of supposing ourselves to know what we do not know. For what is the necessity for affirming, or denying, or defining with accuracy on these subjects, and others like them, when we may without blame be entirely ignorant of them? CHAPTER sixty. It is more necessary to use all our powers of discrimination and judgment when Satan transforms himself into an angel of light, lest by his wiles he should lead us astray into hurtful courses. For, while he only deceives the bodily senses, and does not pervert the mind from that true and sound judgment which enables a man to lead a life of faith, there is no danger to religion. Or if, feigning himself to be good, he does or says the things that befit good angels, and we believe him to be good, the error is not one that is hurtful or dangerous to Christian faith. But when, through these means which are alien to his nature, he goes on to lead us into courses of his own, then great watchfulness is necessary to detect, and refuse to follow him. But how many men are fit to evade all his deadly wiles, unless God restrains and watches over them? 
the very difficulty of the matter however is useful in this respect that it prevents men from trusting in themselves or in one another and leads all to place their confidence in god alone and certainly no pious man can doubt that this is most expedient for us chapter sixty one this part of the church then which is made up of the holy angels and the hosts of god shall become known to us in its true nature when at the end of the world we shall be united with it in the common possession of everlasting happiness but the other part which separated from it wanders as a stranger on the earth is better known to us both because we belong to it and because it is composed of men and we too are men this section of the church has been redeemed from all sin by the blood of a mediator who had no sin and its song is if god be for us who can be against it all his deadly wiles unless god restrains and watches over them the very difficulty of the matter however is useful in this respect that it prevents men from trusting in themselves or in one another and leads all to place their confidence in god alone and certainly no pious man can doubt that this is most expedient for us chapter sixty one this part of the church then which is made up of the holy angels and the hosts of god shall become known to us in its true nature when at the end of the world we shall be united with it in the common possession of everlasting happiness but the other part which separated from it wanders as a stranger on the earth is better known to us both because we belong to it and because it is composed of men and we too are men this section of the church has been redeemed from all sin by the blood of a mediator who had no sin and its song is if god be for us who can be against us he that spared not his own son but delivered him up for us all now it was not for the angels that christ died yet what was done for the redemption of man through his death was in a sense done for the angels because the enmity which sin had put between men and the holy angels is removed and friendship is restored between them and by the redemption of man the gaps which the great apostasy left in the angelic host are filled up chapter sixty two and of course the holy angels taught by god in the eternal contemplation of whose truth their happiness consists know how great a number of the human race are to supplement their ranks and fill up the full tale of their citizenship wherefore the apostle says that all things are gathered together in one in christ both which are in heaven and which are on earth the things which are in heaven are gathered together when what was lost therefrom in the fall of the angels is restored from among men and the things which are on earth are gathered together when those who are predestined to eternal life are redeemed from their old corruption and thus through that single sacrifice in which the mediator was offered up the one sacrifice of which the many victims under the law were types heavenly things are brought into peace with earthly things and earthly things with heavenly wherefore as the same apostle says for it pleased the father that in him should all fullness dwell and having made peace through the blood of his cross by him to reconcile all things to himself by him i say whether they be things in earth or things in heaven chapter sixty three this peace as scripture saith passeth all understanding and cannot be known by us until we have come into the full possession of it for in what sense are heavenly things reconciled except they be reconciled to us by coming into harmony with us for in heaven there is unbroken peace both between all the intelligent creatures that exist there and between these and their creator and this peace as is said passeth all understanding but this of course means our understanding not that of those who always behold the face of their father 
we now, however great may be our human understanding, know but in part, and see through a glass darkly. But when we shall be equal unto the angels of God, then we shall see face to face as they do. And we shall have as great peace towards them as they have towards us, because we shall love them as much as we are loved by them. And so their peace shall be known to us, for our own peace shall be like to theirs, and as great as theirs, nor shall it then pass our understanding. But the peace of God, the peace which he cherisheth toward us, shall undoubtedly pass not our understanding only, but theirs as well. And this must be so, for every rational creature which is happy derives its happiness from him, he does not derive his from it. And in this view it is better to interpret all in the passage, The peace of God passeth all understanding, as admitting of no exception even in favour of the understanding of the holy angels. The only exception that can be made is that of God himself. For, of course, his peace does not pass his own understanding. CHAPTER 64 But the angels even now are at peace with us when our sins are pardoned. Hence, in the order of the creed, after the mention of the holy church, is placed the remission of sins. For it is by this that the church on earth stands. It is through this that what had been lost, and was found, is saved from being lost again. For, setting aside the grace of baptism, which is given as an antidote to original sin, so that what our birth imposes upon us, our new birth relieves us from, this grace, however, takes away all the actual sins also that have been committed in thought, word, and deed. Setting aside, then, this great act of favor, whence commences man's restoration, and in which all our guilt, both original and actual, is washed away, the rest of our life, from the time that we have the use of reason, provides constant occasion for the remission of sins, however great may be our advance in righteousness. For the sons of God, as long as they live in this body of death, are in conflict with death. And although it is truly said of them, as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God, yet they are led by the Spirit of God, and as the sons of God advance towards God under this drawback, that they are led also by their own spirit, weighted as it is by the corruptible body. And that, as the sons of men, under the influence of human affections, they fall back to their old level, and so sin. There is a difference, however, for although every crime is a sin, every sin is not a crime. And so we say that the life of holy men, as long as they remain in this mortal body, may be found without crime. But, as the Apostle John says, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. CHAPTER 65 But even crimes themselves, however great, may be remitted in the Holy Church, and the mercy of God is never to be despaired of by men who truly repent, each according to the measure of his sin. And in the act of repentance, where a crime has been committed of such a nature as to cut off the sinner from the body of Christ, we are not to take account so much of the measure of time as of the measure of sorrow, for a broken and a contrite heart God doth not despise. But as the grief of one heart is frequently hid from another, and is not made known to others, by words or other signs, when it is manifest to him of whom it is said, My groaning is not hid from thee. Those who govern the church have rightly appointed times of penitence, that the church in which the sins are remitted may be satisfied, and outside the church sins are not remitted. For the church alone has received the pledge of the Holy Spirit, without which there is no remission of sins, such at least as brings the pardoned to eternal life. Chapter 66 Now the pardon of sin has reference chiefly to the future judgment. 
for as far as this life is concerned, the saying of Scripture holds good. A heavy yoke is upon the sons of Adam, from the day that they go out of their mother's womb, till the day that they return to the mother of all things. So that we see even infants, after baptism and regeneration, suffering from the infliction of diverse evils. And thus we are given to understand, that all that is set forth in the sacraments of salvation refers rather to the hope of future good, than to the retaining or attaining of present blessings. For many sins seem in this world to be overlooked and visited with no punishment, whose punishment is reserved for the future. For it is not in vain that the day when Christ shall come as judge of quickened dead is peculiarly named the day of judgment. Just as, on the other hand, many sins are punished in this life, which nevertheless are pardoned, and shall bring down no punishment in the future life. Accordingly, in reference to certain temporal punishments, which in this life are visited upon sinners, the Apostle, addressing those whose sins are blotted out, and not reserved for the final judgment, says, For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord, that we should not be condemned with the world. Chapter 67 it is believed, moreover, by some, that men who do not abandon the name of Christ, and who have been baptized in the church by his baptism, and who have never been cut off from the church by any schism or heresy, though they should live in the grossest sin, and never either wash it away in penitence, nor redeem it by almsgiving, but persevere in it persistently to the last day of their lives, shall be saved by fire. That is, that although they shall suffer a punishment by fire, lasting for a time proportionate to the magnitude of their crimes and misdeeds, they shall not be punished with everlasting fire. But those who believe this, and yet are Catholics, seem to me to be led astray by a kind of benevolent feeling natural to humanity. For Holy Scripture, when consulted, gives a very different answer. I have written a book on this subject, entitled, Of Faith and Works, in which, to the best of my ability, God assisting me, I have shown from Scripture that the faith which saves us is that which the Apostle Paul clearly enough describes when he says, For in Jesus Christ neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, but faith which worketh by love. But if it worketh evil and not good, then without doubt, as the Apostle James says, it is dead, being alone. The same Apostle says again, What doth it profit, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith, and have not works? Can faith save him? And further, if a wicked man shall be saved by fire on account of his faith alone, and if this is what the blessed Apostle Paul means when he says, But he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire, then faith without works can save a man, and what his fellow Apostle James says must be false. And that must be false which Paul himself says in another place, Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners, shall inherit the kingdom of God. For if those who persevere in these wicked courses shall nevertheless be saved on account of their faith in Christ, how can it be true that they shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Chapter 68 but as these most plain and unmistakable declarations of the apostles cannot be false, that obscure saying about those who build upon the foundation Christ, not gold, silver, and precious stones, but wood, hay, and stubble, for it is these who, it is said, shall be saved, yet so as by fire, the merit of the foundation saving them, must be so interpreted as not to conflict with the plain statements quoted above. 
Now would hay and stubble may, without incongruity, be understood to signify such an attachment to worldly things, however lawful these may be in themselves, that they cannot be lost without grief of mind. And though this grief burns, yet if Christ hold the place of foundation in the heart, that is, if nothing be preferred to him, and if the man, though burning with grief, is yet more willing to lose the things he loves so much than to lose Christ, he is saved by fire. If, however, in time of temptation he prefer to hold by temporal and earthly things rather than by Christ, he has not Christ as his foundation, for he puts earthly things in the first place, and in a building nothing comes before the foundation. Again, the fire of which the Apostle speaks in this place must be such a fire as both men are made to pass through, that is, both the man who builds upon the foundation gold, silver, precious stones, and the man who builds wood, hay, stubble. For he immediately adds, The fire shall try every man's work, of what sort it is. If any man's work abide which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. The fire then shall prove not the work of one of them only, but of both. Now the trial of adversity is a kind of fire which is plainly spoken of in another place. The furnace proveth the potter's vessels, and the furnace of adversity just men. And this fire does, in the course of this life, act exactly in the way the apostle says. If it come into contact with two believers, one caring for the things that belong to the Lord, how he may please the Lord, that is, building upon Christ the foundation, gold, silver, precious stones, the other caring for the things that are of the world, how he may please his wife, that is, building upon the same foundation, wood, hay, stubble, the work of the former is not burned, because he has not given his love to things whose loss can cause him grief. But the work of the latter is burned, because things that are enjoyed with desire cannot be lost without pain. But since, by our supposition, even the latter prefers to lose these things rather than to lose Christ, and since he does not desert Christ out of fear of losing them, though he is grieved when he does lose them, he is saved, but it is so as by fire, because the grief for what he loved and has lost burns him. But it does not subvert nor consume him, for he is protected by his immovable and incorruptible foundation. CHAPTER 69 and it is not impossible that something of the same kind may take place even after this life. It is a matter that may be inquired into, and either ascertained or left doubtful, whether some believers shall pass through a kind of purgatorial fire, and in proportion as they have loved with more or less devotion the goods that perish, be less or more quickly delivered from it. This cannot, however, be the case of any of those of whom it is said that they shall not inherit the kingdom of God, unless, after suitable repentance, their sins be forgiven them. When I say suitable, I mean that they are not to be unfruitful in almsgiving, for Holy Scripture lays so much stress on this virtue that our Lord tells us beforehand that he will ascribe no merit to those on his right hand, but that they abound in it, and no defect to those on his left hand, but their want of it, when he shall say to the former, Come, ye blessed of my Father, and inherit the kingdom, and to the latter, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire. Chapter 70 We must beware, however, lest any one should suppose that gross sins, such as are committed by those who shall not inherit the kingdom of God, may be daily perpetrated, and daily atoned for by almsgiving. The life must be changed for the better, and almsgiving must be used to propitiate God for past sins, not to purchase impunity for the commission of such sins in the future. 
for he has given no man license to sin, although in his mercy he may blot out sins that are already committed, if we do not neglect to make proper satisfaction. Chapter 71 now the daily prayer of the believer makes satisfaction for those daily sins of a momentary and trivial kind which are necessary incidents of this life. For he can say, Our Father which art in heaven, seeing that to such a Father he is now born again of water and of the Spirit. And this prayer certainly takes away the very small sins of daily life. It takes away also those which at one time made the life of the believer very wicked, but which, now that he has changed for the better by repentance, he has given up, provided that as truly as he says, Forgive us our debts, for there is no want of debts to be forgiven, so truly does he say, As we forgive our debtors, that is, provided he does what he says he does, for to forgive a man who asks for pardon is really to give alms. Chapter 72 And on this principle of interpretation our Lord's saying, Give alms of such things as ye have, and behold, all things are clean unto you, applies to every useful act that a man does in mercy. Not only, then, the man who gives food to the hungry, drink to the thirsty, clothing to the naked, hospitality to the stranger, shelter to the fugitive, who visits the sick and the imprisoned, ransoms the captive, assists the weak, leads the blind, comforts the sorrowful, heals the sick, puts the wanderer on the right path, gives advice to the perplexed, and supplies the wants of the needy. Not this man only, but the man who pardons the sinner, also gives alms. And the man who corrects with blows, or restrains by any kind of discipline, one over whom he has power, and who at the same time forgives from the heart the sin by which he was injured, or prays that it may be forgiven, is also a giver of alms, not only in that he forgives, or prays for forgiveness for the sin, but also in that he rebukes and corrects the sinner for in this too he shows mercy. Now much good is bestowed upon unwilling recipients when their advantage and not their pleasure is consulted, and they themselves frequently prove to be their own enemies, while their true friends are those whom they take for their enemies, and to whom in their blindness they return evil for good. A Christian indeed is not permitted to return evil even for evil. And thus there are many kinds of alms, by giving of which we assist to procure the pardon of our sins. End of chapters 54 through 72. Recording by Darren L. Slider, Fort Worth, Texas, on April 13, 2007.